0: Hebrews thirteen eight to 9 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow him. May God add his blessings to this reading from his word. Gerald will now bring our message. Thank you. Bibles. I nearly forgot. I've got to turn this on, don't I? Right, am I hearable? Good. Let's pray. Lord, I'm an inadequate and broken vessel. So we need your grace and your spirit to speak to us. Because without that, whatever I say is just a clanging gong. Amen. I would like to set some basics first. I am assuming that everybody here believes in an afterlife. Correct? Okay. Um, But what does that look like? We have ideas of heaven and hell And we have ideas, I presume, about who goes where. And our basic philosophy, I presume, for everybody here, is that those who have placed Jesus as the ultimate Lord of their life and who trust in him for their salvation will go to heaven. That fear? The converse of that is that those who do not abound for the outer darkness and the gnashing of teeth. Christ's own description of hell. If that's the case, why do we mourn so much and grieve when somebody who is close to us, who is a believer, And trusts in Jesus dies. This is particularly true, I think, when it's a child. It's particularly hard for the parents. What's the cause of our What's the cause of our distress? It can't be that we we assume that they're in a worse place. So, isn't it really just a broken relationship? Conversation, companionship, shared experiences are all gone. We feel the absence of some undefined part of us, something valuable is missing. It's as though some part of us has been amputated. So how long does it take to overcome this pain? How long to actually forget the searing loss that we just sang about? Sometimes years, sometimes decades. Could it be that it takes a whole generation, or two generations, or even three? You know, some exceptional, some really exceptional people may be remembered beyond three generations. They will be in history books, they'll have statues and other memorials to keep the memory of them alive. But the memory will be without the pain of searing loss. Now I'm not suggesting in any way that grieving is misplaced, no, it is very real, just as the relationship that has been lost is real. Grieving is natural and I believe right. However there is another broken relationship that all mankind suffers from. You've all heard the phrase, in the beginning God, God what? Well, God doesn't just create. He has a relationship with man. God made man for relationships. In Genesis, very early on on the piece, Genesis 2, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. You know the story. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here's the crux of the matter. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I can think of no closer relationship than becoming one flesh, it supersedes the relationship of child to parent. And I would suggest it's only superseded, or should be superseded, by the relationship of the individual to God. But then what happens? Genesis 3. Verse 8 and 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Man tries to hide from this relationship because he's embarrassed, he's ashamed. And notice something here. Why on earth does God say, where are you? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that you can hide from God, right? And it's a bit ridiculous for God to be saying, where are you, when obviously he knows. What we're seeing here is God playing the man's game. And in doing so, he's indicating That I'm prepared to pursue you, man, to somehow reclaim that broken relationship. Right here, right at the beginning, I don't want a broken relationship. That's the statement God's making. But the reality is that the relationship is broken and man is cast out of the garden and no longer has the benefit of God's immediate presence. God is now veiled to protect man from his glory. Just as Moses could not be exposed to the full glory of God and the loss for mankind is felt. Again, the loss is real. But how long would it last and how long would it take to forget? Genesis 5 lists the line of Adam down to Noah. Now remember Noah and remember his time. Genesis 6. This is what it says of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Interesting. He walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And you know the rest of the story. It is clear that by this time mankind had forgotten God or at least was ignoring him, which surely means pretty much the same thing. But how long had this taken? Well, this is the list of the generations Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. And then when Noah was 500, he had three sons. These guys lived a long time, don't forget. Two men in this group, I think need special mention Enoch and Noah Enoch was the guy in chapter 5 of Genesis Uh, this is what it says of him and he became the father of Methuselah and Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters altogether Enoch lived 365 years Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. In the old King James Version, and Enoch was not because God took him. Two men, out of these ten generations, if you include Adam, are mentioned as walking with God. None of the others were. Not even Adam. You see, Adam had broken away from God and gone his own way. But the fact remains that Adam had originally walked with God. He must have had past memories of what that walk was like. Had he passed that on to his descendants, the story of Cain and Abel suggests that he did. They both made offerings to God. There was a problem of jealousy there, but they did both make offerings to God. Surely that could only have come from Adam's instructions, from his memories of what walking with God was like. When Enoch was born... Adam was 687, but he lived to be 930. How much did Adam's memories inspire Enoch? We don't know. But we do know that within the space of nine generations, and in reality one living generation of separation, God was forgotten. You see, Adam lived to see Lamech, who was Noah's father, be born and lived to the age of 56. Thus Noah was only one generation removed from the man who originally broke trust with God. Adam then, who had walked with God and had first-hand experience of what God was like, was only one generation removed from the generation of his descendants described in Genesis 6.11 as being corrupt and causing violence on the earth. Mankind, apart from Noah, one sole man, had completely turned their backs on God. They considered God completely irrelevant and forgotten. Mankind seems able then to abandon and forget God within a generation. That's a pretty frightening thought. But there were some in the history of mankind who were mindful of God and seemed to desire his company. Melchizedek, who was the priest of God, who... uh, Abraham tithed to, although at that time it was Abraham, not Abraham. So here's two men, Melchizedek and, and Abraham, who desired to work with God. Why? Well, I think that Blaise Pascal put it best. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That hole desired to be filled, like all vacuums. And there were occasional men throughout history who have recognized this and recognized that God was the solution. Mankind generally tries to fill that void with other things. That's why Pascal says, which cannot be satisfied by any created things. He observed people trying to fill the void, and we see it today wealth, power, fame, drugs, sex you name it, it's been tried, and it's failed. His observations of 300 years ago are still true today. All in all, this means that mankind not only lost a relationship with God and thus intimate knowledge of Him, but he also lost knowledge of Himself. He no longer knew how He could be satisfied. Psalm eleven verse ten reads The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise endure forever. Proverbs nine ten repeats the same thing The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs one verse seven The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Job. And he said to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Surely a man who does not know what can satisfy him cannot understand himself. And if he cannot understand himself, how can he possibly claim to have any wisdom? So we see that very quickly mankind regressed from knowing God intimately by walking in his presence to being actually astoundingly ignorant of him and likewise likewise ignorant of himself. me. But how then can man get to know God when God himself has veiled himself to protect man? The answer can only be by revelation. God has to take action to reveal some aspect of himself. And he has been doing this to individuals throughout the generations. Last time I spoke, we looked briefly at the names of God in the Old Testament. Now these names represent revelations of God that had been given to various people through the ages, I will list some of them and I want you to note carefully that none of these things contradict each other. All these names actually broaden our understanding of God, but they do not contradict, never, not once. The Lord God Almighty in Genesis 17, verse 1. I'm, I'm not doing this in any particular order. It's kind of random. Um, simply meaning the most high God. Uh, and then Adonai, which simply means Lord or Master, but it's the plural form, so it actually means Masters. My Masters. Down in Genesis 15, relatively common. Uh, Yahweh, which we translate as Lord or Jehovah, which has the meaning of absolute ruler, omnipotent God. It almost has the sound of a despot. The Lord my banner, found in Exodus. Or oh, it could also be translated the Lord my miracle. But this is the Lord who encourages. And becomes a focal point. That's the whole point of a banner in battle. The Lord, my shepherd, which we find in Psalms. We also find it in Genesis 48 and 49. The Lord who heals. Exodus 15, verse 26. The Lord is there, which is found in Ezekiel, which is simply saying, God does not abandon. Remember how I said, He has said effectively to Adam, I'm going to pursue you. I'm not letting this relationship fail without a fight. The Lord our righteousness. Interesting. The Lord who sanctifies you. And in Exodus and Leviticus. These two are quite different from the others which seem to focus more on the majesty and the omnipotence and the power and the glory of God. They focus really on God doing something to renew the relationship. Then the everlasting God or the God of eternity we often hear it's son, the Ancient of Days, which is the same meaning. Elohim, which is the very first use of God in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And it just means God, but it has the image of creator and nuances of judge. It is the most commonly used name in the Old Testament. But interestingly, it is the only one that has any connotation of judge. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, Genesis 22. Uh, Judges 6.24, the Lord is peace. And Samuel, the Lord of hosts. And then of course there's the name that we are most familiar with, I guess. I am that I am. The name that was given to Moses to repeat to the Israelites in bondage. Perhaps that could be expressed also as I am who I will be. The Lord of existence and permanence. It rings like Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Psalms, God is most often portrayed as the Lord of salvation, and not always physical salvation, though often that is the case. If we look at Psalm 51... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And then later on, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. startling. David is recognising the need not just for physical succour but for a spiritual renewal that can only come from God. He cannot do it himself. Not one of these attributes contradicts any of the others. Those that go before all hang together. Because you see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. They cannot contradict what went before because he's still the same. This is why we see this, what appears at first to be a strange pairing of Jesus Christ the same yesterday with a warning against false teaching or against false prophets as it is in other parts of the New Testament. God does not change. And this is a litmus test for false teaching. If we hear something that is contradictory to what has already been taught within the Bible about God, we're listening to a false prophet. I've taken this approach because two things have concerned me greatly over the last couple of years. Two things that I consider to be seriously false teachings. One is the view that God has to change to suit society. Now I think that is absolutely ridiculous. The teaching of scripture is not that God has to change. The teaching of scripture is that man individually has to change and society change as a result of that. It's putting the thing back to front. It sounds astonishingly stupid to me, actually. But I've been been surprised and how common that is. The other thing is a view of universalism, which simply says that if there is a heaven at all, then everybody's going to go to it because that's the only thing that's just. Well, that contradicts what Christ taught. And I don't see how it can be in any way right. Who is to determine what is just? Certainly not me. You see, the only rock that we have to stand on to make judgments about what is just and what is right are the teachings that God passes down. We are not capable of making those judgments ourselves. Be wary. It strikes me that we are approaching Noah's times again. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand who you really are. Help us to be wary about the strange and false teachings that seem to be swirling around us. Give us an understanding of your precepts so that we can withstand the winds that buffet us. Amen.